extended forecast is the low that Saturday morning supposed to be right around 59 or 60, and and uh, it'll be a little cooler out there, so that'll be nice. And then the high is supposed to be around 77 to 78, so that's just going to be be absolutely perfect. We're going to get uh, maps up on the internet, on the website, so people can get maps, directions, all of those kinds of things, in preparation for uh, for the picnic. The other major announcement is that every now and then, we need to contact people in the congregation for uh, because of an emergency cancellation of Bible class due to inclement weather. But we also send out a lot of other announcements and important information to people. So we need a current email address from everybody, even live streamers. Uh, others can email in, and we can add you to our list, and we use MailChimp, and we uh, send these announcements out. Also, if you want to be on the list, you can go to westhoustonbiblechurch.org. That's not hard to remember that name. West Houston Bible Church, one, one word, dot org, and select About Our Church. That's one of the tabs. And at the bottom of that menu, there's an option to subscribe to our email list. Select it and follow the directions to sign up. That's the church website, not uh, Dean Bible Ministries. So go there to get signed up on the uh, mailing list. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Holy Spirit, enjoying our fellowship, our rapport with God. Uh, prior to our study, we need to be prepared, so we'll have a few moments for silent prayer. So if necessary, you can confess sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray tonight as we come together that you would just guide and direct us as we study your word. Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, sometimes it's not easy to understand your word, especially since we have to translate from another language, bring it over into our language. Not only uh, are there language issues, but there's also cultural issues to bring those over as well. Help us to understand and to do that. Father, we understand that it is in the light of your word that we see light and that uh, the stability that we have or desire and to have in life, to be uh, content, to have real joy, not emotional joy, but mental attitude joy in our lives comes only from your word. We need to abide in your word and let it saturate our lives. So, Father, we pray that tonight as we study, you can help us to think through things we have heard before, things that we have learned before, and add new information to it. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying about the roles of a elder shepherd overseer, the words that are used in the scripture. And we have been reminded in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and following, Paul warned the uh, elders of Ephesus when they met him at Miletus. He said, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up. So there's going to be an outside attack and an inside attack. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. That's the job of the overseer, the elder, the pastor. Therefore, watch. And then he says, remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Well, I've got a warning video for us today. This came in today in an email from Charlie Clough. It originated from John Cross in Good Seed Ministries. You all know John. He hasn't been here in a long time, but we know of that ministry and support that ministry. And John is um, up in uh, Alberta, Canada. And uh, as you know, the Canadians are a lot further down the road in terms of of uh, especially legalizing and legalizing same-sex marriages and also dealing with hate speech, and now we get into all of this transgender problems. Uh, there was a conference about a month ago or less in northern Virginia that Pastor Dan Ingram attended, and I don't remember the name or title of the conference, but there were three speakers there. One of them was Dr. Ryan Anderson, who is with, um, it's not Hillsdale, what's the other think tank that's up there in D.C.? Um, anyway, he's written a book call on this. He's, what? Heritage. I knew it started with an H. Heritage. And he's, um, he's written a book called When Harry Became Sally. And really focuses on this. He's, he, this is his area of expertise. He was one speaker, Rosaria Butterfield, Champagne Butterfield, who, uh, until she became a believer, was a radical left-wing, far-left-wing, uh, lesbian, feminist, activist, tenured professor at Syracuse University, and now she's on almost on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. She was another speaker. And then there was a speaker from Southeastern Baptist Seminary. The pastor's group that I meet with on Friday mornings has been going through studies related to something else, but last week and next week we're listening to these videos from that conference. This is a real challenge. This is going to be a major issue shaping the battles of the church over the next 10, 15 years. And so John sent this video. It's a report originally from Christian Broadcasting Network, and I got interrupted several times today, but I've watched about two-thirds of it. It's a five-minute video, but it's important to see what is happening in Canada does not necessarily come here because their hate speech laws against... uh, 
uh, even quoting scripture that contains prohibitions of homosexuality is, is much worse. We don't have anything like that yet. But this is a preview of coming attractions. A radical sex ed curriculum is being pushed in Canadian public schools by the LGBT community. It has parents afraid their children will become confused and even brainwashed. As Wendy Griffith discovered on a recent trip to Canada, there could be a silver lining. This issue just might awaken a sleeping church. A family can be made up in many different ways. It's called SOGI, for sexual orientation and gender identification, a curriculum that teaches public school students across Canada to celebrate the homosexual lifestyle and that gender is fluid. In other words, your gender is not dependent on what parts you were born with, but rather what you feel like in the moment. There's people that are boys, there's people that are girls. There are, peop there are people whose gender might be a little bit of both or might even be neither. Lessons include books about transgender children, such as 10,000 Dresses and songs like The Rainbow Song. Gender won't decide the choices we make. Some boys like dressing up, some girls like catching snakes. The SOGI curriculum started in British Columbia in 2016 and is quickly spreading throughout Canada. I just thought, who decided that this was okay to teach our children? Author and inspirational speaker Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson is a leading voice against the SOGI curriculum. And we are seeing the results of that now because some kids are reacting very emotionally and saying, you know, and they're in fear, will I be you know, will I suddenly struggle with feeling like a different gender inside of my body? Carrie Simpson of Culture Guard, another leading opponent, calls the curriculum nothing short of child abuse. All those beautiful qualities that make young girls beautiful girls and women are being basically vilified. The things that make our boys boys are being, you know, taken from them. Um, so things of equating young men to being strong protectors is something that's now evil. But Morgan Auger, a transsexual and supporter, claims it's about acceptance, not indoctrination. The idea is to teach kids that there are gay kids and there are trans kids and there are trans parents and gay parents in our society and, the, and everybody's wanted and desired. After all, that's what our human rights code says and it's the role of schools to teach the, to teach the following of our laws, right? Simpson disagrees, saying she sees Soji's real goal as altering our culture from a heteronormative society into one where anything goes, no boundaries, no values, no morals. Um, it's a hedonistic uh, cult, basically what they're Im implying. Another blaring example, drag queen story time. It's happening in Canada and America, where some public schools and libraries invite drag queens, some dressed like horned demons, to read to young children. And it's a social deconstructionist agenda. They're using children, little five-year-olds, to accomplish this. And parents are waking up and saying no. When asked about parents' rights, OJ says... Well, actually, in Canada, parents' rights are limited and children's rights are put ahead. So the child has the right to be protected from the parents when the parents behave badly. Canada is known as one of the most gay-friendly countries in the world, with many of their largest cities featuring their own gay villages, like here in Vancouver, which has literally rolled out the Rainbow Road. 
Most gays, like village resident Dave Davy DiCarlo, support SOGI and limiting parental rights. The change that we have to see is sometimes the parents and the kids are doing actually really okay. This is very scary stuff. Longtime Vancouver area pastor Kevin Cavanaugh says this is far more serious than most Canadian Christians realize. Our problem is not the teachers, the educators, the administrators. This is a battle in the heavenlies. He says Satan is going after their most vulnerable, the children. And the little, little girl came home in tears because the teacher had told her since she was playing with some toys in the class that were deemed to be masculine in nature that she was likely a boy in a girl's body. The mother went to the school the very next day, and instead of having any sort of tolerance or support or understanding, she was actually called names. She was told that she was a homophobe, that she was a bigot. With that in mind, Tyler Thompson, Simpson, and Pastor Kevin are spreading their message across social media and in town hall meetings. The pro-gay backlash has been fierce. And the hatred and the anger and the bullying that came against us, even though we said, we love you, we don't, uh, we don't take from you the opportunity and the freedom to live as you choose. We love you, but we do not agree with you. Pastor Kevin believes Canadian Christians are in a Second Chronicles 20 moment. The word was this, this battle is not yours, Jehoshaphat. This battle is the Lord's. And the church is beginning to prepare for what it takes to fight for our kids. The battle between an aggressive homosexual agenda and the faith community here in Canada is far from over. But many Christian leaders say it may be the issue that causes a once-sleeping church to rise up and be heard. Wendy Griffith, CBN News, Vancouver. All right. That's sobering, isn't it? And that thing with the library and the uh, transvestites and the uh, coming and, and reading in the in uh, library to children's hours, that was going on in Houston this week. And we need to thank God and really be in prayer for the Houston pastors Council and the Texas Pastors Council. All of these are part of the same group, basically headed up by Dave Welch. And I've been a part of this, not as active as I'd like at times, uh, but I'm part of this, and they send out alerts, and they're constantly challenging the administration and the mayor uh, on, on these issues. And Christians need to stand up. Because we are the one, there, there's no other organization that's going to take the stand to protect the divine institutions in this nation and to protect our children. And so this is truly a satanic attack on our culture. It's not, uh, God isn't judging, going to judge us for this. This is God's judgment for negative volition. That's what we studied in Romans chapter 1. And so we need to wake up. This is the battle that's coming here. And we need to be prepared for it as believers. It's not going to get any better. But one of the things that God has provided for us is solid, mature Christian leaders. And that's what we're studying as we are in um, our study in 1 Peter 5, 1. So last time we looked at shepherding in the Old Testament. Now, let me tell you why I did that and, and why we're looking at this. When we get into the New Testament, we have one time in the epistles that the noun 
pastor is used to describe a church leader, and that's in Ephesians 4.11 in the phrase pastor and teacher, some pastors and teachers. It's there, and we're going to look at that. But to understand what pastor means, because the main command that we have in 1 Peter 5.2 is to shepherd the flock of God. And if we are going to understand what it means to shepherd when we're in this urban and post-industrial revolution culture where most of you have never put your hands on a lamb or a sheep or a goat or or a calf, we have to understand what this metaphor means and what it doesn't mean. So we have to understand that because that the background for this term is going to come out of the Old Testament. It's not going to come out of Egypt. It's not going to come out of Greece. It's not going to come out of West Texas or Montana. It's going to come out of an understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament, how that image uh, was used. And we looked at that um, the last time. I thought I had a slide for that up here, but uh, yeah, I do. Okay, let me back up. So this is the same thing Paul says to the Ephesian elders, that they are to shepherd the church of God. And what we've seen so far is there's a term elder, which uh, primarily is the word that is used in relation to the church leaders. You have the apostles and elders in Acts. You have Paul giving uh, the qualifications for an elder to Titus, for an overseer or episcopos in First Timothy chapter 3. And that these are all basically referring to the same person. The term elder emphasizes his spiritual maturity, not his physical age, but his spiritual maturity. The term bishop is the function of the office. He is to uh, oversee the local church. And then pastor has to do with his role and responsibility of feeding or tending the sheep. And that is related to teaching. So we had these questions we started with. We looked at terminology. We looked at the issue of when did the church begin, that the church was future. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, on this rock I will build future tents, the church. It wasn't in existence at that point. It's not in the Old Testament. When did it begin? We saw that it began on the day of Pentecost. And the Acts tells the story of how the church originated and how it expanded. And then we trace through the development of leadership in the early church, saw that initially it's the apostles. Then they uh, appointed some men to help them in the administration of the uh, of the money to help the the widows in Acts chapter 6 that's not they're not called deacons the verb is used not the noun and then later we have the apostles and elders making decisions for example at the Jerusalem council deacons are not mentioned any time in the book of acts so th- it it develops and then we went to the period after the closing of the canon and studied that and the development of three basic forms of church government, which we have looked at to some degree, the Episcopalian form, the elder rule form, and the congregational or one elder, one pastor congregational form of government. So we started off looking at this and investigating what, how is the imagery of a shepherd used in the Old Testament in order to express leadership Qualities, And what we concluded with last time is a shepherd leads, a shepherd guides, 
a shepherd feeds, a shepherd provides security for the flock. Uh, I've got guides in there twice. He restores when there are injuries or problems. He protects and he corrects. So all of these are defined in the New Testament in relation to the leadership of the church, and they're done through the Word of God. Leadership is through the Word of God. Guidance is given through Scripture, uh, feeding, nourishing on spiritual truth, security, guiding. But there's more than just that, because if you're overseeing a congregation, there's administrative issues, there's you know appointing different leaders for different uh, responsibilities within the church, things of that nature. So, so this leadership component is a, an important element, but the the heavy emphasis is really on providing for this for the nourishment, for the protection, for the correction and the restoration of the body of believers. And of course, those those words all call to mind, as I pointed out last time, Second Timothy. Uh, 3, 16, and 17, that this is what the Word of God does, that it is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for instruction in righteousness. So this is the role of the pastor in terms of teaching people how to exchange human viewpoint in their soul for divine viewpoint. And that it focuses on the word as our source of feeding, reminding us of Deuteronomy 8.3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is a source of, of nourishment. So this idea of eating is a significant metaphor that is joined together in passages with the, the idea of being uh, a pastor. Tonight, what I want to do is look at what we find in the in the New Testament. When we come into the New Testament, we find that the major use for shepherd as a noun is related either to a literal shepherd in parables or literal shepherds in terms of the shepherds who came when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and came uh, to worship him uh, as a result of the announcement from the uh, from the angels, but it is used, if it's used in a metaphorical sense, it is applied to Jesus in every instance except Ephesians 4.11. And so I want you to turn uh, with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. And we're just going to pick up a few things there because Jesus is talking about himself here. And I think this is an important thing because there have been some people who tried to take John 10 and apply it to a pastor. This is a unique role of Jesus as our shepherd, and there are certain things that can carry over to pastors, human pastors, but there's some things in here that don't apply to human pastors at all. Because we're not called, God's plan is not for us to give our life for the sheep. Now, you can make that allegorical and say, well, you know, you're, as a pastor, you're dedicating your life to studying and nourishing, but but that's allegorical interpretation. Jesus is talking about he's going to give his life literally, physically, on the cross for the church, for the sheep. That's not allegorical interpretation, so don't be moved into some area of of, uh, of application based on 
based on allegory. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to his disciples, and remember Matthew 26 is in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane when he's about to be arrested, and he said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he's applying that uh, imagery of taking out the shepherd and then the flock having no leader, no direction, uh, will be scattered. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, he uses a couple of different analogies here for himself. He talks about himself as the good shepherd, and he talks about himself as as the door or the doorkeeper uh, to to the flock, and uh, this comes up in uh, throughout this particular uh, particular section. And he starts off and he says, "Most assuredly, I say to you, in verse one, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber." Okay, there's only one entry into the sheepfold, and the shepherd would lie down across that entryway to prevent uh, a thief or to prevent a, 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 a wild animal from entering into the sheepfold. So he's putting his life on the line for the sheep. And he says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And Jesus is using this to talk about the believers at, at that time, and he is uh, the good shepherd. And he goes on to develop this when uh, in the next coming verses. If you skip down to verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And so this is one of the first things we see in relationship to what the shepherd does. He's dedicated for the sheep. He's going to protect the sheep. And in contrast, there's the false shepherd. Uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about the false, sh the leaders of Israel as false shepherds, uh, the hireling. And, of course, now he's talking about the Pharisees. A uh, hireling, who, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep, and and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. So there's that warning there that there are those who want to scatter the sheep, those who want to attack the sheep, but it's the role of the shepherd to protect the sheep. And uh, again, he repeats the idea of the next verse, verse 13, the hireling flees because he is, uh, he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and and am known by them. And so he goes on and develops this imagery in John chapter 10, being the good shepherd. And we also come to uh, his reference of being a shepherd in a couple of other passages in the, in the New Testament, which emphasize the fact that he is the leader. He is the head of the body, okay? So he's the one who is in authority, and so these other ideas are also part of the shepherd, uh, shepherd imagery. Leadership and authority are part of that, of that imagery. Now, I want to take you now to the end of the Gospel of John, 
And we want to review this. You've heard, most of you have heard me teach this before, but we need to hear these things several times so they get locked down. So I want to go through this again. We did it not long ago at the conclusion of Matthew. In John chapter 21, there is a conversation between Jesus and Peter that is rich with significance. The passage starting in verse 1 of chapter 21 is rich with meaning. And so I want to just start off by reviewing the basic conversation that is here that is significant. Jesus is talking to Simon Peter. It's the, the disciples are sitting around, but they're probably having, you know, if, if you've ever been camping out or you've ever eaten out on the beach where you've had a hamburger cookout or fish cookout or whatever, everybody finds a little comfortable rock or a place to sit, and they're not just all sitting around like they're in a, in a Sunday school class. And so now Jesus has a conversation with Peter, and he's trying to tell Peter something about his future ministry. The context of this is all important because, remember, Peter had denied the Lord. He would he First he denied that he would ever uh, deny him, and then he denied him, and then he was extremely uh, embarrassed and ashamed of himself for having denied the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him at some point, we're not told when, but he forgave Peter. And that was a very significant and intimate moment. And then the next time we see them together is this episode, and I'll say a few things about that in chapter 21 earlier. But they're coming together here, and they're having a meal together. Now, most of you... Most of those listening don't have much of a background in Middle Eastern culture, and Middle Eastern culture hasn't changed a whole lot in the last two or 3,000 years. And in a Middle Eastern culture, uh, they're not quite as open, perhaps, in inviting people into their home as you and I practicing Southern hospitality might be. Because having somebody into your home means that you're really welcoming them into your family. You're making them part of the family. And it's an indication that there is peace between you. And it's an indication that whatever may have been done in the past is no longer an issue. And that there is forgiveness and there's harmony. That's, that's part of what is going on in the Passover meal. And especially the Lord's table is we are at peace with God. Uh, we're having sitting down and having this this meal or the representation of this meal with God. It is the Lord's supper. So it is a picture of the fact that we have been forgiven and that we are at peace with God. So they have they've eaten breakfast. And now Jesus is, has this conversation, and three times he asks Peter if he loves him. And each time it's fascinating. He changes the verbiage, different synonyms to make the point. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter was probably getting, well, didn't you get it the first point, the first time? You got a resurrection body, your your hearing's perfect. Did you listen? 
yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Notice he went from tend my lambs to shepherd my sheep. That's a, a good shift in English translation to get the point that the, the, the nouns have changed. We, we're dealing with a big group of synonyms here. And then the third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Jesus, instead of asking him, do you agape me? He now says, do you phileo me? Because each time Peter answers, he says, you know, Lord, I phileo you. So that, there's a nuance there. We'll look at that in a minute. But Peter was grieved. He's feeling sorry. He's, he's embarrassed. Why, why does he ask me a third time, do you love me? And so Peter said to him, so Lord, you know all things. And different word for no. Uh, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, the main thing I want to focus on here is not all of the different synonyms that change, but on, on the commands. That's what's important for us in the context of our study. So two things are important for interpretation, understanding what's going on here. First of all is context. The basic rule of interpretation just like in real estate. Real estate, it's location, location, location. That's context. It's context, context, context. If you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. And that's what happens with a lot of people. We have to understand that context. And then we have to understand these synonyms. What's going on here? And I've told you many times before, the trend today is to say, well, this is just stylistic variance. No, it's not stylistic variance. There's a point that's being made because Jesus is being very deliberate in the way he is using his language. And see, the problem you get when you go to many seminaries today and you're taught hermeneutics and you're taught Greek or Hebrew, these synonym differences are ignored a lot uh, instead of dealing with the technicalities and the specifics and the the micro details of a passage. So context is important. You have a big context. It's the Gospel of John, all 21 chapters. Then you have the immediate context, which is John 21. And then there's a context that's much broader, and that's that we're going through a dispensational shift. We're going from a focus on Israel and a priesthood that is determined by genetic lineage, descendants from Levi and the tribe of Levi and the high priest, a descendant of Aaron, with physical qualifications for the priesthood and no spiritual qualifications are laid down. And so now we're shifting and we're going to go into a new environment with a new organism called the church, and it's going to be led by apostles and prophets and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. Okay, that's just Ephesians 4.11. So Jesus is teaching them more and more about what their job description, what their mission is going to be in the coming church age. Now, when we look at John, there's two major themes in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, verses 20 to 31 the emphasis is on the acquisition of life. And this starts back in verse 20, and Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, and it culminates because 
Thomas is going to, who has doubted the resurrection, is going to see him alive. And now, instead, before he even touches him, he immediately realizes that that Jesus is risen. And the whole focus here goes to uh, belief, and it concludes, truly Jesus did many other signs. Now, that's an important term because there are eight signs in the Gospel of John, which we'll see in a minute, eight signs, and the eighth sign was the resurrection. And so now John summarizes this and says Jesus did many other signs other than the eight that this Gospel's organized around, which are not written in this book, but these, these what? These signs, these eight are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's what this is about, is having life in his name. And then the other aspect of John is the sustenance of life. How does that new life grow? John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus that you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You're born again by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. But how do you sustain that life afterward? And in John 10.10, we read, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. See, there's two things there. First, to have life, that is to be regenerate. Second, to have it more abundantly, that is spiritual growth. So these eight signs that are listed, these eight miracles in the Gospel of John, all lead up to the resurrection. And these are all given as signs to authenticate and provide evidence that the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, is valid because he meets the qualifications. So, two principles we should note from the context of John is that the believer must consistently and frequently, must be consistently and frequently fed to be properly nourished and grow spiritually. The analogy is with our regular physical health. If you ate once a week, you would be pretty anemic and skinny and in poor health. That's how most Christians are, sadly, because the only time they have any spiritual nourishment is on Sunday morning. And frankly, what they're getting is bread and water, and the bread's pretty stale and old because the pastors are not feeding the sheep very much from the Word of God. So we have to be properly nourished, and grow spiritually. Second, the growing and maturing believer, we learn from John, from Jesus' teaching in the Upper Room Discourse, is love for other believers. That is the mark, Jesus says. That's convicting. How are people going to know I'm a disciple of Jesus? Because they see my love for one another. Now, this isn't some sentimental love. This isn't sentimental. This isn't go give them a hug day. Uh, this isn't uh, pseudo-compassion because love is also tough. Love is demanding. Love is caring, concern, but it doesn't compromise values, and it doesn't... Um, uh, just wimp out, and it's not permissive. 
And that's how people today want to talk about love. You'll love me if you let me do what I want to do and get away with what I want to get away with. And if you really love me, you'll believe me even if there's no evidence uh, of what I'm saying. So we are to truly understand what the Bible says that love is. It's a key word in John. The verb agapao is used 37 times in the Gospel of John. Now, the upper room discourse began in John chapter 13, verse 1, when it says that Jesus loved his disciples and he loved them to the end. Okay, that's the beginning of the upper room discourse, goes from John 13 through John 16, and then John 17 is the uh, his Jesus' prayer to the Father. Notice, only seven times does the verb agapao, the verb for love, occur before chapter 13, and it occurs 20 times in those four chapters. That ought to say something. In Bible study methods, that's called the law of proportionality. And because it is used way out of proportion in those four chapters, it tells us that that's a major theme in those four chapters. Second, we learned that um, love is this major theme in 13 through 16, but it's not, the verb is not used at all in chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think we have this overload on love in 13 through 16, 17, and, no, 16, and then not mentioned at all in 17 to 20? Think about it. Could it be that that Jesus teaches them about love and he says, greater love hath no man than he that will lay down his life for his brother? And then what starts happening in chapter 17? He's praying for the disciples and for the church. And then in chapters 18, 19, and 20, you have his act of love as he gives his life for the church. So you have the instruction on love in 13 through 16, and then you have the example of love in 17 through 20. The noun for love is used only seven times in John, one time before chapter 13, five times in chapters 15, and one time in chapter 17 tells you a lot about, again, the upper room is all about love. The synonym for agapao is phileo, or the noun is philos, which has to do with a more intimate kind of love. Agapao is God's love for unbelievers. God never has phileo love for unbelievers. That is a more intimate love. It's the kind of love that he had for the uh, Laodicean church. Remember the ones, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Well, they're already believers because they're objects of God's phileo love in that particular passage. So phileo is used 13 times in John, but only four times before chapter 13. 
It's the noun is used six times, but only two times for chapter thirteen. So thirteen through through seventeen is mostly thirteen through sixteen because the use of love in seventeen is when Jesus is talking about his love for the Father. So thirteen through sixteen is saturated with the concept of what love is. Now that's the mark of the church age believer. So in those chapters, Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. That's a command. We're to abide in God's love. John thirteen thirty four and 35, I've mentioned already a new commandment. I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also will love one another by this. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a pretty challenging statement. That by looking at you and your love, people are going to be able to know that person is a student of Jesus Christ. John fifteen twelve and 13, John 13, 1, which I quoted already, John 14, 1, 23. Uh, 23 is the barometer of the Christian life. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, and how many people talk, oh, I love Jesus. How do you know you love Jesus? Do you know you love Jesus because of the way you feel? No. You know you love Jesus by the way you obey him. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's not legalism. That is obedience. That's like a little kid in a house wants to please his parents. He loves them and he wants to do what pleases them. If you love me, you will keep my word. Jesus knows it's not going to be perfect. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. Uh, You'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's talking about an increased intimacy of that fellowship, enjoying that relationship with God. John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. So flip it. He who does not keep my words does not love me. John fifteen ten. if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Earlier, he said, if you love me, you'll abide in my, you know, you'll let the word abide in you. So if you want to abide in Christ's love, you keep his commandments. Now, Jesus was talking to Peter in Matthew sixteen eighteen, and he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock that is, he's talking about himself, really, I will build my church. Rock is one of the primary names for God in the Old Testament. And that's what he's saying upon me. I'm the rock. I'm the chief cornerstone. Later on, he will say, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter. He says, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then later he says, Peter, feed my sheep. What does he say in verse 18? He says, I'll build my church. He doesn't say, Peter, you build the church. He doesn't say pastors, it's your job to build the church. He doesn't say board members, go hire a, a an advertising company, a promotion team to come in and promote your church on television so that it can grow. Anybody who is uh, talented in certain areas can go build an enormous church, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit had anything whatsoever to do with it. Jesus said, you feed the sheep, I'll build my church. 
the responsibility of the church leadership, as we'll see in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, is to feed the sheep, to teach the Word. This idea of taking in the Word, feeding on the Word as a picture of learning the Word is used throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, and your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. His name was Jeremiah. Yah is the first syllable in Yahweh. I am called by your name. Your words are a delight to me. First Peter 2.2, 2, Peter got the lesson. He said his newborn babes desire, that's the command, desire the milk of the world like a brand new baby. What do brand new babies do when they get hungry? They demand to be fed until they start starving to death, and then they just get real quiet, and then they die. And I think that's what happens with a lot of believers. They never get fed, and spiritually they just shrivel up. They don't lose their salvation, but they 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 just shrivel up, and they're no longer nourished or healthy as believers, and they get totally messed up. Peter said in Second Peter 3.18, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the milk of the word is what nourishes us. That's how we grow. That's how we're nourished and fed. This is what a pastor is supposed to do. That's what a shepherd did. A shepherd took the flocks to the right fields in order to be nourished and to feed on the grass in that, in that pasture. That is the knowledge of who Jesus is and the grace of God. So we've seen that the overall context of the gospel, John is talking about loving one another and as a sign that you and as a sign of that you are keeping God's commandments. When Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me? What's the corollary? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So then he gives Peter a commandment. He's reinforcing this. Before you didn't show that you loved me, you denied me. Now I want to bring the point home. Do you love me? Yes. Keep my commandments. Those who keep my commandments love me. That's the sign. So the immediate context of John 21 starts off in the first part where Jesus comes down to finally meet the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias and it says he manifested himself, this word. This is a, the Greek word, phanerao, which means he revealed himself to them. This is a revelatory moment. Jesus is going to teach them something. This is all a teaching moment for Jesus. And then it lists who's a, who the disciples were, and Peter's there, and Thomas, and Denimus, and Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee, and a couple of others. And they've been... They've been fishing with Peter. He wanted to go out and take the boat out, so they went out fishing, and they fished all night, and they caught nothing. And this was unusual because fish would come out to, to feed at night, and at this particular place that is that is mentioned here, you kind of see it maybe on the slide in the background, it's called Tabga. And it is a place where there is a spring that comes out, and it is a place where the fish will accumulate to feed in that particular location. And they've caught nothing. It's because God's doing something. 
There's a reason they didn't catch anything is because Jesus is going to show up. And here's just a couple. I'm going to skip the pictures. Go to John 21, 7. So anyway, um, Jesus says, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's John, saw, talking to Peter, and said, Look, it's the Lord. So when Peter heard that, he gets all enthusiastic. He's been forgiven at this point, and he is so excited to see the Lord. He puts on, uh, picked up his outer garment because he had stripped down to work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples were a little more responsible, and they said, Somebody's got to bring the boat into shore. And so they brought the boat into shore from about 100 yards out. And um, and what's happened here, did I skip something? Did I skip something? Four or five? Yeah, I left out verse 6. Somehow that slide disappeared. Let me. That's the crux of the whole thing. Jesus said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were able to draw it in because of the multi, uh, multitude of fish. What Jesus is teaching them is he provides the fish. Connect the dots. What did Jesus say to the disciples, to Peter and John, at the very beginning when he called them to be disciples. Follow me, and I will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's at the beginning. Now, what does he do? He provides the fish. He's teaching them he's going to provide the hearers. He's going to provide the fish. He's going to provide everything they need. It is a fantastic uh, illustration of the fact that these pastors who are scared to death about what's going to happen in the church, we have to trust God to provide the hearer. It's not up to our manipulation in the flesh. We're to do our job. The trouble is so many pastors probably shouldn't be leading churches because they really don't know how to lead biblically. We'll get to that. So once this happens, they realize who he is. That's what John, uh, I mean, that's what John recognizes. So Peter swims ashore, and they drag in the rest of the fish. And Jesus has the fire laid. He's sufficient in his provision of everything. He provides the fish. He provides the fire. He provides everything necessary to cook the fish, and including the bread. And so they have this meal. Again, this is a picture of their fellowship, their close relationship with Jesus, their his acceptance of them, their forgiveness, their reconciliation with him. And so <clears throat> we're then told there are 153 fish. That has no symbolic value. It is to show detail. It's, oh, it went, he, man, he had a lot of fish. So 153, that would have overloaded the net. They weren't that large. That is talking about God's ability abundant provision we trust in his sufficiency so now we get into the three questions that jesus asks and they're built around these these four pairs of synonyms the first is the two different words for love jesus says do you love me do you agapao me because that's what he's been using primarily in the upper room discourse if you love me if you agapao me you will keep my commandments Peter is still dealing with his intimacy issues with the Lord because of his denial of him and everything. And so he wants to go a step further. And he's saying, not only do I 
agapao you, but I phileo you. I, I, I have an intimate relationship with you. He wants to make sure the Lord understands that. Then, um, then when we get into uh, the next verse, or later in the verse, we, we read, um, when in Peter's answer, he says, Yet, less, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Well, no, he uses this word oida. Other times he'll use gnosko. Oida is, is, Lord, you're omniscient. You know, this word is usually used of, a, of God's omniscience, his immediate intuition. You know that I love you. And then later he'll say, you come to know that I love you. You've seen my, my change. And then there's feeding of the sheep. There's two different words here. We'll see bosco and poimino. Bosco means more to feed. Poimino is the broader term that we translate shepherd. Poimino is the verb. Poimenos is the noun. And then sheep. And there's two different words for sheep. Arnia emphasizes a lamb, a young baby believer. Probata emphasizes just any lamb. But there's always a little hint when you're talking about the sheep that they're vulnerable. They need to be protected, and they can be attacked. So that, that's the background. So we have these synonyms. Sometimes words can be synonyms, and they're almost identical. That's what that shows. And so, some of these synonyms are almost identical. Others are like this. You have a broader term like agapao, and a subset of that is phileo. It's agapao can have as part of its meaning a more intimate sense, but that's primarily what phileo is getting at. It's like a subset of the larger, uh, broader word agapao. And then you have words that are about 80% different, but at some point they will overlap and be somewhat synonymous. Now, whenever you have synonyms, you need to make sure you understand, is there a point here? And you need to work hard sometimes to figure that, that out. So as you look at these, these synonyms, the ones we're concentrating on are going to be these two words, Bosco and Poimino, to emphasize the different responsibility of the shepherd of what it means to love the Lord. If I love the Lord, I need to feed the sheep. It's not in a job description that you give me as my congregation. It is the job description God gives me. That's what I'm answerable to. If I love him, I will feed the sheep. So in John twenty one twenty five, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. So what he is saying here is a sort of an expanded paraphrase. Simon, do you agapao me more than these others? And have you learned the lesson? In other words, have you learned the lesson of humility yet? Are you willing to submit to my authority, and are you willing to do what I tell you to do? Because he was awfully arrogant before. And he, that is Peter, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience, oida, that I now have an intimate, intense love for you. I phileo you. 
intense love for you now that I've been forgiven and understand what grace is all about. Okay? And then Jesus said, feed my little lambs. Now, R.C. Trench wrote a book called Synonyms of the New Testament in the late 1900s, early, early 20th century. And he makes a comment. He says, the distinction notwithstanding, he makes a big deal about these synonyms. And he's sort of denigrated for that today because uh, he's just making too big a deal out of it. But he says, that the dis- talking about what he just said, the distinction notwithstanding is very far from fanciful. Bosco, the Latin pascere, is simply to feed. But poimino involves much more. See, poimino is that broader term. Let me back up to this slide. Poimino is the big yellow circle. Bosco's the narrow one. It's it's feeding poimina it includes feeding, but it has a little bit more than just simply feeding. Okay. Let me get back to where I was. Okay. So Jesus said, feed my lamb. So what Trench is saying is uh, the whole, the poimino involves much more. It's the whole office of the shepherd, the guiding, the guarding, the folding. That's all having to do with security, protecting the flock, as well as finding nourishment. It's what I've been saying. It is primarily focused on the nourishment of the word, but it adds an element of leadership and direction. That's important to understand. So he says, feed my lambs, and this is the term arnia for spiritually young. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he, and he uses phileo, uh, phileo again. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Now, there's a change because here he's going to use the term poimino instead of bosco. So it's a broader term. It's going to include more. He says, feed my sheep. And sheep here focuses on all ages. So you, it's going to go bosco, poimino, bosco. Okay? So it's. Feed, shepherd, feed, and it starts off with my lambs, and then it goes to sheep, and then it stays with sheep. So it's talking about the broad range of the ministry of the pastor is to spiritual babies as well as spiritual adults, and you have to feed them at their at different age group. And then the third is in verse 17. Third time Jesus says, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved and said that he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You have come to know all things. You've watched me. I've accepted the forgiveness. Let's get past this. That's what Peter is saying. Uh, You know that I love you. Come to know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. So now it's going back to Bosco, but he changes the object to sheep, which is all inclusive of all age groups. Okay. Okay. When, when he, uh, I, I, I misstated that, I want to make sure it's right. When Peter said, "You know all things," it's oida. You're omniscient, and then he says, "And you have come to know or come to learn from experience that I love you." Okay. I'm going to have to stop there. 
just as we get to Ephesians 4.11, because we have a lot to cover there. And so we'll come back and talk about that next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together, to be reminded that that we as sheep have a responsibility, and that is to feed on your word, to be in, under the teaching of a pastor, and to study and to take in the word and to uh, eat the word and to take it into our lives and to apply it. And that as a pastor, I have the responsibility to feed, to nourish, and to provide for the spiritual sustenance of the congregation. And it, it's a teamwork that works together that leads towards your glorification and the preparation of all of us for our future, op, our future time to rule and reign with you in, in the kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with our understanding of this, help us to be clear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.